As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Phil Hay Show. Hello and welcome to the show. The Phil Hay Show brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan and with me from The Athletic, Phil Hay. Hello. And from the square ball, Michael Normanton. Hello. Right now and for a limited time, you can subscribe to The Athletic for just £1 a month. It's where all Phil's fantastic storytelling on Leeds United lives. And there's loads more too from the Premier League, the football world and sport from around the globe. And I am looking forward to reading that bit on Jean-Kevin Augustin, uh, which you'll get a flavour of actually in a short while on this show when we have a chat about that particular mystery. If you want to get involved in that then, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to sign up. Go to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod and sign up for just one pound a month. International break then, Phil. A little bit of downtime, particularly with it coinciding with the end of the international transfer window. We'll come round to all that stuff in just a bit, but let's wrap up the footballing side of things and have a look, first of all, at Man City, but also the season so far. Um, Good run at the weekend, wasn't it? Very enjoyable, I presume, from your point of view. Very enjoyable, very watchable, very much what we were expecting from Bielsa and, and Guardiola. And, and I think outside of the, the spectacle itself, another step forward for Leeds, who I've just felt in, in the first month have adapted really well to the division and, and have also shown really good ability to, to kind of learn on their feet and, and to react on their feet in periods of games that have been difficult or in, in patches where it seemed as if the tactics weren't quite coming together or, or they were they were being heavily outplayed. And, and the, you know, there's no doubt at all that in the first 20 minutes against City, it's the, the best and, and slickest football that they've come up against so far. It, it really was a case of City banging on the door and coming at them from all angles, um, dominating the midfield with De Bruyne and and Foden. And, you know, looking in that period like they they would score, which they did through Sterling, and and that they would probably score again. And and I do think if the game had had gone 2-0 at that point, it would have been very difficult for Leeds to have clawed anything back. But the the thing that stood out for me in that match, aside from Bielsa, to my mind, winning the tactical battle with Guardiola by making the change at half-time and bringing on Paveda, timing the introduction of Rodrigo nicely to, to just add a bit more potency at a point where, where Leeds were getting on top. I was really impressed with the way that, that Phillips and um, Matthias Cleek went from struggling against Foden and, and De Bruyne um, and, and you know 
finding it hard to track them, finding them hard to follow, finding it hard to anticipate their positioning, to getting on top of them in the second half and, and to a large extent um, playing them out of the game. And it surprised me in the end that it took Guardiola so long to put Fernandinho on because I, I thought they were crying out for that substitution a good 15, 20 minutes earlier because of the pressure on De Bruyne and Foden, both of whom you know are looking to play forward and, and are trying in the main to be part of a, a front five for City. There was very little structure to their midfield and, and there was no solidity in it at the point where, where Leeds started to dominate. Um, so again, you, you just see them going through the learning curve, you see them going through the learning process. And I think it's that you know, that cliche comes around all the time in football when you when you lose or you drop points or you have periods in games where you don't play well, you know, you, you learn from it, um, is what people always say. But I actually think that we're seeing that and I think it, it is happening. And I am really impressed, you know, not just with Phillips and, and Clay, but to to pick them out in isolation, the way they reacted on, on Saturday, the way they managed to work out what was going on and, and to find a solution to it all, I think epitomises the first month that Leeds have had. I thought it was nice as well how Dallas and Ailing both had a bit of a torrid time early on, but by the end of the game, they were the ones pushing forward and causing Man City problems. Well, the difficulty with Leeds, and, and Jurgen Klopp touched on this on, on the first weekend, is that they don't drop. They don't drop off and, and the fitness and the stamina never goes. So even if there are periods of a game where Liverpool or City or, or Sheffield United or anybody else think, you know, they're on top, they're dominating, it's it's hard to play against, but the chances are, you know, this will fade, this won't last. You, you find that towards the end of a game, they are still dominant or they or they are still playing and attacking in the way that, that they always do. I mean, City had the better of the closing stages. Once Fernandinho came on, the, the game did swing again and, and they found themselves in much better positions. They looked more likely to nick the goal in the last 10 minutes. But again, a, a bit like Bramall Lane, I came away from Ellen Road feeling that if that game had, had gone either way, from the 20th minute to about the 80th, I felt that it was Leeds who looked more likely to win it. Um, and I certainly felt after Rodrigo's goal went in that if another goal was going to come in the next 10 or 15 minutes, it was going to be past Edison um, rather than um, Melier at the, the other end of the pitch. Um, so I think that, you know, it, it's the, the combination of factors. It's the, the understanding of the tactics and it's the, the technical skill and, and talent that, that Leeds do have combined with the, the fitness levels and the conditioning, which is making them extremely difficult to play against. And I think this is the sort of start they were looking for. This is the sort of start that can set them up for a comfortable year in, in the Premier League. And I know Bielsa would never say this, but they must be quietly delighted with how it's gone. Do you think there's been genuine progress within those first four games? I do. Um, I, th- I think you've seen in games how they've they've managed to get a hold of them. I, I thought it was most evident at Sheffield United, where in the first half it was back and forward. Um, they were a bit porous down the right on Ailing's side of the field. They they got away with one with that, that fantastic save um, from Millie in, in the first half. But I sat through the second half there f- feeling as if I was watching so many of the games that I'd seen Leeds play under Bielsa in the Championship, them on the front foot and you know occupy, occupying that that area outside the opposition box, passes back and forward, chances, just that you know the the general feeling that that they're in control, and it's the fact that you're seeing this in this division against better sides. I mean, there were, there were lengthy stretches against Manchester City, and I, I put that down as the best performance so far, the, the City game. But there were patches in that where City were struggling to cope. You know, we're struggling to contain leads. We're struggling to work out the formation. We're having problems with the the pace and and the width. And you know, I, I do feel like they've they've developed again. I do feel like they've they've improved. And also, and we've we've spoken about this before. You know, the ability to to adapt and to improvise with longer balls when they need to and, you know, a way of getting past the press, which has been pretty pronounced from most of the teams they've played against so far. They are trying to push Bielsa's players 
um, further back and they are trying to press high up the pitch. But they've coped um, and I think they've come out with this with seven points deservedly. You know, I, I think eight would probably be right because I think they, they deserved a point away at Anfield on the first weekend of the season. Any more than that would would potentially have been more than, than they'd earned. But I mean, it's, it's exactly what they were looking for. That was one thing that was quite telling for me was the speed at which Man City closed down Calvin Phillips. I think early on in that uh, first 20 minutes, they really had our number and realised he is kind of the fulcrum of this entire system. And it was really pleasing to see Leeds figure a, a different way to play around that. Yeah, I mean, you saw right from the start that Maris, who was playing in, in the middle of City's front three, so not a, an out-and-out number nine, um, he was screening Phillips. He was making it very difficult for Leeds to to play the ball to him. Um, he was almost tempting Leeds to pass the ball to Phillips in circumstances where he was liable to lose it or to find that, that he had Maris or somebody else on top of him. But, I mean, if you went back and watched the game again, you would see that, that over time and as the game developed, Phillips started to work out the positions he could move into to get himself a bit of space, the positions he could run into to open up space for other people like Cleek alongside him. And it started to come together pretty quickly. And you felt as if by the end of the first half, even though City had had, you know, the better of the chances and, and you know, could easily have been more than a goal up, you felt that by half time they'd settled and they'd, they'd got into the game. They were certainly in it. And it was just that ability that, that Bielsa has to make a substitution at half time, to change things, to kind of up, up the intensity and to put City, you know, in a place where they're, they're a long distance from the comfort zone. And, you know, I I don't think Guardiola will have enjoyed that on Saturday particularly. I think from a, a neutral football perspective and, and as somebody who loves the game, you'll have appreciated what, what sort of a game it was and how it looked to people watching. But I think a lot of that second half will have been very uncomfortable for them. What do you think Rodrigo did differently when he came on? I think he did a lot of what he did at, at Sheffield United and the change of him coming on for Roberts just gave Leeds more movement in the midfield and more variation and, and variety in his play. And, you know, we started to see this from Rodrigo at, at Bramall Lane. We hadn't, I didn't think he'd particularly flickered in either of the first two league games or in the, the Carabao Cup tie against Hull City either, but... At Bramall Lane, he was very good at dropping deep and, and dropping deep intelligently, you know, knowing when to come and, and when to stay and how to, to try and drag defenders out of position and also very, very careful with the ball, good touch. The, the thing against City was he, he started to look like he was going to score every time he, he went anywhere near the ball. He, he had that shot off the bar. He had the header that Edison saved brilliantly, um, tipped that onto the crossbar as well. And then obviously the finish that was a, a bit of a gimme, but it was a substitution that made City worry. You know, it made them concerned about what he was doing and, and where he was. And they found him incredibly difficult to pick up in the, the 10, 15 minute period um, after he, he came off the bench. I, I mean, it's a surprise to me. And it was a surprise that um, that Bielsa is going with Roberts ahead of him. And, you know, I, I, I kind of understood it at Bramall Lane because if anything, Roberts had been the better of the two players against Fulham and, you know, it, it I guess the team was picked on that basis. But Rodrigo, to my mind, was so good at Bramall Lane and, and so effective that it, it seemed to make sense to to start him against City. I guess on reflection, you, you could say that Bielsa picked the right time to get him on the pitch. And actually, once he did come onto the pitch, it, it felt as if Leeds were going to win the game. And and in you know in those circumstances, you would almost have said that Bielsa had, had pitched it perfectly. Um, but I think there was... I hate using this phrase, but I think there was an element of a moral victory for Leeds in that game to, to play as well as they did against City and to come out of it feeling that they'd have they'd have been worth the win if they'd nicked it. I think it's just another big shot in the arm. Is that the position Rodrigo was bought to play in, do you think? Or is he being made to fit in the system at the moment? A bit of both, I think. I mean, Leeds knew that he could play as a 10, he can play out wide, um, he can play up front if 
if Bielsa wants him to. But it, it was inevitable that Bamford was going to start the season as number nine and nothing Bamford's done so far has, has weakened his position at all. If anything, it's consolidated him. And I think Bielsa will be, will be backing him even more rigidly than, than he normally does. If you look at um, Rodrigo's kind of recent history, the, the assists have been stronger from him than the goals. You know, they've been more numerous. It suggests that actually the creative side of his game has been a bit more effective than than the goal scoring side. I think Leeds would hope to get both out of him. But it, I, I don't think you would say that he's been shoehorned into position, if you know what I mean. He's playing somewhere where he is comfortable and, and somewhere where he's good enough to operate. I suspect it's not his favourite favorite position. I suspect he would rather play as a nine if he could, but you're not in, we're not in circumstances where you've got a central midfielder being asked to, to kind of masquerade as a 10. He's very, very much a forward who can play in a, a variety of areas. And of course, Bielsa likes players who can do that. Um, Robert's been one of them. Interesting to chart Robert's progress because if you were to go on Twitter during that first half against Manchester City, a lot of people were singling him out as the weak link, even though he did do some good stuff. And it was interesting to see like his ascendancy just before lockdown. He really started to play himself into that side, didn't he, when we were still in um, in the championship, post-lockdown, nice run of form. But I think with this step up, maybe are we likely to see a slightly more bit part role now for Roberts going forward? Would be would definitely be my assumption. Um, although, you know, Bielsa takes his own view of this and, and I think in the same way that there were periods last season where people were clamouring for, for Bamford to come out of the team and, and he didn't, Bielsa wouldn't drop Roberts on the basis of of him getting picked apart on on social media or, or even on the basis necessarily of a couple of, of fairly mediocre performances. He tends to take a, a broader view of things. But I think it becomes harder and harder to justify Robert's selection when you have Rodrigo playing like that. And, and when you have a player like Rodrigo in your squad at all, who is obviously worth the, the money that, that's been paid for him um, and, you know, Spain international with a, a lot of experience at, at an elite level behind him... At, it's been very difficult for Robert since he's since he signed from West Brom. Constant injury problems, and you know, I, I wrote last season about the issues he'd had um, with the the shin injury that he suffered or, or was diagnosed with just after he signed. You know, it had an infection in there, had to have the the bone cleaned out. It, it's cost him a lot of time um, away from the team. It's cost him a lot of, of appearances. And you still feel, even now looking at him, that you, you do get good bits and pieces out of him. I, th- I thought that, you know, the pass to Dallas in the first half that um, created that chance that Edison saved was was very, very clever. Um, he, he does have that about him. And like you say, in the weeks leading up to the lockdown, he, he did seem to be shining, did seem to be thriving. But I wouldn't have said that was the case in the nine games post-lockdown particularly, and I wouldn't have said it's been the case either um, in, in the early weeks of, of this season. So I, I think, but you know, still there to be used, I think very much a squad player, but it's hard not to feel that Rodrigo really is the, is the option that's got to be used there. Going back to that period after lockdown when Hernandez was absolutely key to everything we did, how encouraging is it that we don't seem to need him quite as much? Well, it's, it's an early point to, to draw that conclusion really, isn't it? I, I mean, I... If I go back to the way I felt about last season, at the point where lockdown came and Leeds were on that run of, of wins without conceding a goal, it didn't feel that Hernandez was particularly essential in that team either. You know, he's, he's always somebody you want on hand and he's always somebody you would rather play than than not. But Leeds were coping in the periods where they, they didn't have him. They were looking very strong. I, I, you know, I've, I've said a few times that I don't think at that point in mid-March, Hernandez would necessarily have been the outright candidate for the Player of the Year award. And, you know, that, to, to my mind, seemed to be based on the, the kind of unbelievable streak of form that came when, when the game started back up. You'll get a better idea further down the line 
um, this season whether or not they can cope without Hernandez long term and, and obviously this isn't a long term thing for him and I would expect him to be very close if not back on the other side of the, the international break given that he was looking at a at a two week absence with this groin strain but the bottom line is that they, they have to move on from Hernandez at some point and not move on to the point where they, they get rid of him here and now but they have to and, and to be perfectly honest under Bielsa this, this has been the case they have to move to a point where actually other players can carry the club in, in the same way and I know Hernandez had that sensational run at the end of last season but they haven't been anywhere near as reliant on him as they were in periods when Gary Monk was, was manager or in periods when Heckenbottom and, and Christensen were manager as well where it really felt at times like if you didn't have Hernandez and you didn't give the ball to him what were you going to do? You know, what was the solution? Um, and, and how were, were Leeds going to figure difficult situations out? It doesn't feel to me quite like that anymore, but I still don't doubt that that he's a, an essential player that Bielsa is going to need at some stage. Over on the Square Ball pod this week, uh, Moscow made a good point regarding Gianni Alioski and the fact that, that he was taken off. And perhaps this is the first sign of a little... Decline is the wrong word, but perhaps he slides down the pecking order just a little bit, particularly when we talk about uh, Rafinha, which we'll come on to shortly, and then the overall shape of the squad. Alioski might find himself as a more kind of a, a sub to be brought on to disrupt things late on rather than somebody who's a starter. Yeah, I think if truth be told, we're already at that point. We've got Dallas at left back. Um, it would have been Jack Harrison playing on Saturday if he wasn't ineligible um, to play against City. Um, it, it feels to me like Alioski is a bench player, although I think the fact that he's ahead of Barry Douglas and we were reporting over the weekend that Watford and, and Blackburn are both interested in Douglas and it does it does start to feel like he will probably go at some stage now given that Leif Davis was preferred to him on the bench um, against City but you know the, he is a, Alioski is ahead of Douglas but it doesn't feel to me like he's going to be a regular starter this season I think Rafinha can play on both sides right or left um, Harrison you know a little bit like Cleek and, and a few others is somebody that Bielsa is happy to rely on any day of the week and I think will do constantly this season and somebody equally who, who just seems to get you know, to improve as the years go by here. He was he was decent in season one. I thought he was excellent in season two. I can see him being very, very good again in season three with Bielsa in the Premier League. So it doesn't leave much room for Alioski when it comes to the, the starting lineup. And I I felt it was a, a fairly weak performance from him on Saturday. I didn't think given that it was such an open door to, to impress and, and play well that he made much of an, an impact, although I have to say, I'm not sure which left winger would have made a particularly great impact in, you know, the the opening 20 minutes when when City were so on top. But yeah, I think Moscow is absolutely right. I think it it will be it will be a bench role for Alioski, and you know, it, it it was inevitable at some point. You know, that there would be players who've been key and, and crucial in this championship spell under Bielsa who would start to become peripheral um, little by little. You know, it's the way of the world and it's the the way of the game and. If Leeds do establish themselves in the Premier League, then um, it, you know he won't be the last player that it happens to. So far, so good. Then, what would you rank this season out of ten so far? I think I'd give it a solid eight. I don't think any any worse than that. I, if you were picking holes in what's gone on, I think you would probably say that the bits of the defending in the first two games that were uncharacteristic um, compared to to the defences it had been under Bielsa um, last season in, in the Championship. But they've looked very structured, they've looked very organised, they, they look like they're as confident in their tactics in this division as they were in the division below. And I've been really, really impressed with their ability to adapt in games, you know, to adapt to what's going on on the pitch, to, to cope um, as they have. And, and to be honest, to match up really cleverly and, and really quite impressively 
to the best that Liverpool have to offer and, and the best that, that City have to offer. I think one point from those two games was as, as little as they deserved and I think it could quite easily have been four. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We started to speak about Rafinha there in part one, so let's get into that one in a little bit more detail now then. Final signing of the international window, which closed earlier this week. And talk us through this signing from your point of view then, Phil. Good, bad, indifferent? Another good one. I mean, we'll, we'll come on to the, the transfer window as a whole a little later, but I, I think it's been a very good summer for Leeds. I've, I've been, you know, they feel like they've had it in control right from the start. They feel as if they've, or it certainly feels to me, that they've been in, in a position where even if certain deals have run into trouble or if they've, they've had complications that they weren't necessarily expecting, they've had... Um, They've had fallbacks. They've had secondary plans. They've they've had things that that were in the background ready to go if if they needed them. And you know, Rafina was a was a very late one. He's he's somebody who, from from what I'm told, was a, a player that both Bielsa and Alter had been had been tracking independently of each other. Um, the, the way it tends to work at Leeds is is that Alter will do his scouting for positions. He'll come up with with options um, which he'll put to Bielsa. Bielsa equally will have. You know, in his head or, or on paper, lists of players who he likes and lists of players that, that he's looking at. And and in this case with uh, Rafinha, it, it married up. You know, Alta liked him, Bielsa liked him, and, and he was somebody that, that they wanted to do. But he was also somebody who they assumed wouldn't be available and, and wouldn't be on the market. Um, Ren qualified for the Champions League for the first time last season. They, they paid the best part of £20 million to take him from from Sporting in Lisbon um, 12 months earlier. So he hadn't been on the scene in France for very long and, and he was a player that they that they rated. But Rafinha wanted to go um, and, and in the end made it clear to Ren that, that he did want to go. And, and I saw the reports like everybody else on Monday saying that he'd been forced out against his will and he'd been made to leave even though he wanted to stay at Rafinha. But my understanding is that that's not correct. Um, he was as keen to, to make the move as anybody else was. and So it was a, a very late one for Leeds, one that they, they had to get done pretty quickly Saturday, Sunday, um, and then obviously pushed through quickly on Monday. And in the end, it wasn't particularly quick. It was half 10 um, when it was announced, but to push through before the, the 11 o'clock deadline. And it's another deal that they're really, really happy with. And and again, you're talking about somebody who's played at, at a high level of a very strong European league, somebody who has all the attributes you look for in a winger. He's he's two-footed, he can play on either side, he's quick and he's he's creative and has the, the odd goal in him as well. And, you know, I I agree with the people who feel that it would have been nice to have had a, a central midfielder, an eight or a 10, in through the door as well, just to, to consolidate that position. But I think Rafinha rounds off what has been a very, very tidy window. Some of the details on the Rafinha deal. Wren actually made a slight loss on the fee, didn't they? Because if they'd have gone over a certain mark, presumably... They had a deal in place with Sporting where if they received more than they paid for him 12 months previously, they would have had to pay a big wedge of it onto Sporting. So they've actually, uh, we've paid less than they paid for him a year ago with obviously add-ons taking that fee north of the uh, of the basic fee. But still, we've got a pretty good deal by the looks of it. 
I think Leeds were surprised by the fee, although I was reading some quotes from um, the president over at Rent today, which um, in which he was saying that you know, given the add-ons and the bonuses that are due and, and everything else, um, he thinks that they'll end up in profit on this one. He doesn't seem too too concerned about that. But again, yeah, it, it was good value and it, it fell into the budget that Leeds could afford. They, they've committed a lot of money to this window and, and clearly, you know, as, as recently as last Thursday, they were talking about spending £20 million on um, Mikhail Cuisance as well from, from Bayern Munich, which fell through because of the medical. Um, but it it just looks to me like a, a quality signing. And, and I think what, what's happened this summer is that they've got to a point where they've enhanced the dressing room significantly and, and they've enhanced it with, with quality signings. But they haven't torn away the core of what Bielsa's done in the Championship. They haven't gutted his squad and, and they haven't butchered what was left over um, after the, the title win last season. You've still got essentially the basis of the same team with, with the same ethos and the same tactics. But I do feel that the players that have been added without exception are improvements on what was already there. Was Rafinha made possible because we didn't do Cuisson? So was the potential there for both of them to arrive? I think it would have been a push to do both. But the the reality with, with Rafinha was that he, he came up as an option in the last couple of days. It, there wasn't something even at the beginning of the week where they were going after Cuisance that, that Leeds expected to to be an option. I mean, obviously we, we have the, the domestic window um, open now for you know, another week or so, and um, and football being football, the market never seems to to truly close. Uh, but I, you know, my understanding is that if they do do anything in this window, and if they do manage to find themselves a, a centre mid who's who's agreeable and and that they they want to take on, then it's likely to be done on loan and um, with a future obligation or option, as opposed to cash up front at the moment because they have spent an awful lot of money so yeah I, I don't know really if, they, if they'd done Cuisance I don't know if the funding would have been there to have done Rafinha I don't know if they'd got Cuisance whether they might have decided that actually they, they already have a fair amount of in the way of options um, out wide which they do I mean especially looking at the way Paveda played on Saturday against City suddenly he, he's come into the frame as as someone who looks like he, he might be up to um, playing games in the Premier League this season, which which obviously begs the question, and in the same way as Diego Llorente and, and as Rodrigo's found for a few weeks as well, uh, of how quickly um, Rafinha is going to be able to get into the team. I think in a lot of circumstances, a manager would sign somebody like him and think, right, he, he plays um, from the off, but Bielsa isn't really like that. And there's a pecking order for everybody, regardless of, of how much the club have, have paid for them. So, you know, he's going to potentially have to bide his time a little bit and, and wait for a goal. Um, and I do, you know, I do wonder if Cuisance had come in whether Leeds would have felt that ultimately they, they just about had enough anyway. Um, but either way, I think they've they've covered themselves nicely. The window as a whole, then, it's been pretty good. And as Angus Kinnear mentioned to us when we spoke to him on the Square Ball podcast, uh, way back when, a, a thing we've referenced a couple of times in recent weeks, they were looking at about 75 to 100 mil and they've done that comfortably. Yeah, they have. And, and that's before you, you factor in the um, the academy signings um, on top of that. You know, it's been a, an expensive summer just looking at the, the kind of top line figure of, of what's been committed. But I think it was... I think it was going to have to be like that. You know, even if, um, you know, the, the way we saw it at the start of the window, that there might be a, a pretty strong focus on, on the championship. I think even if they had been drawn into Ollie Watkins, Ben Rama and so on, you'd have been talking about very, very sizable fees. And given that they were going for four or five players tops, that it wasn't going to be a, a complete change to the dressing room. It was important that they committed a lot of cash to, to quality signings as opposed to signing at, at a lower level. There was no real need to go for lower level signings because they didn't need to spread the budget particularly. You know, they, they had the cash to do 
three, four, five at, at a high level. Um, so it has been a, been a significant outlay, but I do think it's the right way to go as well. I think it was important when it came to to settling in the Premier League and, and getting a foothold that, that they did push the squad on and they did enhance it. And it, you know, th- there is always that temptation when when you come up to to stick as closely as you can to the squad you've got because you don't want to create disharmony and you don't want to to unsettle it. I mean, I always think that there's a middle ground to be found between not changing it to the extent where it's unrecognisable and, and you know all the, the work and the, the understanding that's been created disappears, but equally not leaving it in a position where it doesn't change. And to be blunt, where existing players don't feel any pressure to improve, I think there are a lot of areas in the team now where the need to be better than they were in the Championship is, is quite apparent because of who else is there and, and who else wants to play. And they do do quite a bit of due diligence on the characters of the players as well as the, their technical abilities, don't they? They don't want... Uh, characters who are going to come in and, and be disruptive and uh, we spoke about the fees there we'll get into the sort of the how they did that in part three but let's just have a quick run through the players that they have signed Michael Ben White or Cock and Lorente which do you think everyone's forgotten about Ben White haven't they I think that's how well Cock has done in the last couple of games where people have seen the quality he's got and they've maybe seen clips of Ben White not looking so good so I think you've got to take two players we've been and I know Bielsa's has not been as bothered by it, but I've been absolutely desperate for a spare centre back for two years now. So to have that luxury feels uh, feels worth having. Yeah, I'd um, I'd go along with that. I think particularly because of the age of of Cock and and the fact that you know he's at a similar stage of his career as White looks to me to be a very similar player. And I think if you're being fair, probably has the potential to be better. I don't think it it's um, it's in any way certain that White will emerge as, as the better centre back three or four years down the line and, and again I'm, I'm with Michael cover at centre-back has felt necessary for me for a while and, and Bielsa has coped without it because Bielsa has this marvellous knack of, of being able to but I don't think in this division having Llorente on the bench is a bad thing at all In terms of outgoings then you mentioned Douglas before it feels like his time at Leeds is up now given that he's finding himself way down the pecking order but Bielsa said he's got the opportunity to be involved later on in the season but it doesn't feel like he's going to be does it? Well, the slight difference here between, say, Janssen or Saiz and certain others, Augustine as well, is that there's no effort on Bielsa's part to, to force him out. Um, I don't know how Douglas sees it exactly, but you know Douglas might feel that the fact that he's not involved is a kind of hint as to where he is in the pecking order. But you tend to find with Bielsa that when he decides that somebody's surplus and needs to go... They go. I mean, I, I, I always think back to the, the Sai's departure, the fact that, that Sai said to the club, look, um, you know, I'm homesick. I want to go back to Spain in the next January window. And this was kind of early to mid-December. And Bielsa said, well, in that case, he can go tomorrow. You know, I don't care about waiting until the window opens and I don't care about having him here for the, you know, four, five, six games in between. If he, if he's gone, then he's gone. And, and Sai's was. It, it hasn't been like that with Douglas. And I think there is a lot of appreciation of Douglas's input in the dressing room I think he's he's a popular guy at Thorpe Arch player who a lot of people like but he isn't playing and you know on Saturday to see Leif Davis on the bench ahead of him you know kind of said to me that this is this is coming to an end and, and will come to an end I think the options at Watford and, and Blackburn um, I think Watford are keener at this stage and have, have made more effort to, to kind of explore this deal and see what they can do I, I think if they become serious you know and, and if they're there to be had given that Douglas is up in a year's time um, well, or less than you know up, up next June and out of contract it would surprise me a little if he if he said no to that Just returning to the um, closing of the transfer window we did have hints of uh, a potential midfielder coming in and 
Was that likely to happen ever on the evening, Phil? And you mentioned they might look at one now domestically and it'll probably be something around a, a loan to buy. It just feels a little bit nebulous at the minute. Can you flesh that out a bit? Yeah, no, it is. I mean, as far as they were concerned, as of last week and as of you know Thursday lunchtime, they were going to do cuissons and, and clearly the, the medical throw-up issues that they weren't prepared to um, to gamble on. Um, and, and from that point onwards, it wasn't that they weren't looking and it wasn't that there weren't potentially options out there, but it never got to the stage, certainly on Friday, where you felt as if somebody was coming through the door. They had a lot of work to do with Rafina. I think they, they wanted to make sure that that one, that one got done. And, and the other aspect with Bielsa is that you're not just looking for a central midfielder or, a, you know, you're not just looking for an A10 or, or, or an 8. Uh, you're looking for somebody who is in those positions, but also fits in with, with his specification and the, the list of, of requirements when it comes to attributes and, and talent. So, you know, the same is going to apply to the EFL window. If, if something came up in there that they thought was worth doing and, and that Bielsa thought he could work with, then they would they will probably go for it, and um, particularly as I say, if, if they can do it as a loan. But to be quite honest, if if they can't, then they won't. And I think that was the feeling after Cuisance was that they weren't desperate for a player in, in that position. They they could do with one, um, and they could you know it would be useful to have more options there. And particularly because at the moment it's still not clear when it is that Adam Forshaw is going to be available or or even particularly close to to returning to the squad. Last time we asked Bielsa about him, he, he said that. Forshaw is probably going to need four or five under-23s games before he's considered. So, you know, you'd be looking at the thick end of a month to two months before that that happens. Uh, so, yeah, that is the one thing that's on their mind with the domestic window left. But, you know, just so people are aware of, of what the, the stipulations are, Premier League clubs can't deal with each other now. They can only trade um, with EFL clubs and, and can't trade with anybody abroad either. So it does very much narrow down the pool of, of what's to choose from and, and the pool of clubs that you can speak to. Do you think there's any likelihood they'd revisit Ben Rama and what of Todd Cantwell now? They've been called on Cantwell since the rumours came uh, came to light um, on the, the Sunday of the Sheffield United game. My understanding is that it's been Cantwell's camp and, and his agent who've been pushing this as much as Leeds have. Um, I think that's where the, a lot of the information's coming from. It's not to say, again, that they, they don't like Cantwell or they don't see ability in him, but it... it it hasn't felt as if, you know, in, in the way that they were getting on with Cuisance and in the way that they were getting on with Rafina, and I, I know they've got longer to think about Campbell, but it hasn't felt as if that one was, was really tugging at them, certainly not towards the back end of the of the international window. Ben Rama was on the list right at the start, but they, you know, they, they seemed to go off him uh, during the summer. And, it, you know, it was mentioned to me by a couple of people that they, they hadn't been overly thrilled with the, the video of Ben Ram on social media of him playing volleyball in his swimming pool at, at this huge villa. I think the question arose of, of what his temperament was going to be like, how well he'd fit into the dressing room, the sort of thing that the clubs do think about. And, you know, you have to say with Ben Rama, it's not only Leeds who haven't bothered there. You know, nobody has done anything with him. And I, I still find it hard to imagine that before the end of the, the domestic window, nobody will. But again, a little bit like Campbell, who's who's desperate to get back to the Premier League, they're, they're a little bit out on a limb at the moment and, and there doesn't seem to be an awful lot moving around them. So we'll see see what happens and, and see what changes. But I think the one thing you won't see is Leeds spending for the sake of spending and, and spending just so that at the end of the window they can say they've got a centre mid in. I think if, if it can be done and they can't find the sort of player they're after, then they would rather just leave it. Where does Jamie Shackleton fit into all of this? Because it feels like we're into his third season now where he could potentially break into the first team and cement a place there but it's, it's just not quite happening for him 
Yeah, and he's he's a little bit far back from the the first team picture, or certainly the the picture when it comes to the starting lineup. And it feels that he's probably looking again at a, at a season like the previous two, where he he'll get a a little chance here and there, but will probably mostly be used as a substitute from from time to time. If if that he interestingly hasn't been mentioned over the summer as somebody who might go on loan. You know, there was a lot of talk of of uh, Matthias Bogus going out and he went to Legronis on um, on deadline day. There's been a lot of talk about Robbie Gotts and he's got plenty of interest in him. Um, Sunderland, the Keen, Hull, Huddersfield, bit of talk of, of Swindon as well. And you've seen John Stevens go out to Swindon. You know, Bielsa has been far more open to the idea of, of 23s moving on temporarily to, to get games, but it still is the case that he wants the best of them round about and the best of them playing in the under-23s and available for the the first team squad so Shackleton I, I, it doesn't feel at this stage like he's necessarily going to be involved to any vast degree but I still feel as if he, he is on the fringes um, with Bielsa in the way that he has been for the last couple of seasons With regards to central midfielders and the squad as a whole I've kind of learned in this window in particular that it's better to wait to see what Leeds do and they've got very particular players in mind and it's okay to be patient and if we don't quite get them that we don't need to be that anxious. It always felt in the championship, like because all the the stakes were always so high that we had to get everything right, every single window, because otherwise the whole house of cards falls apart. But now we're up there. I feel fine about not getting an eight or a 10, a central midfielder, because we know we can get through it one way or another. And I wonder, do you feel the same way about that, Michael? Have you got any anxiety about missing out on a midfielder? Not really. I think the start of the season that we've had has, has helped massively. If we were sat looking at the table on three points or maybe even less, I would be probably screaming a bit more about needing some more players in. But as it is, everyone's looked like they can more than cut it at this level. And maybe if Bielsa doesn't, but I actually do have faith that people like Jamie Shackleton will come, come in and do an all right job. We've seen Dallas moving to midfield and do well there. So I'm not, I'm not terrified. And I think if there's, if there's strength elsewhere on the pitch, you can, you know, you can carry a little bit of weakness elsewhere. You're right about how it's changed. I, I was thinking that in a, kind of competitive sense during the City game in, in the second half where it was on the edge and you're thinking Leeds could quite easily win this but then City being who they are you know could could nick it towards the end of the game as well and and it's probably the first time I can remember in, in this job anyway being at a game where you felt you know if Leeds do win this great story and it'll be people will be chuffed to bits if City win it you might actually come out of the other side and say okay well they pinched the goal late on, they, they got the win. But, you know, be able to focus and concentrate on the game itself and, and the performance and, and to come away still feeling very satisfied. Whereas, you know, for as long as any of us can remember, it was impossible to ever feel like that when you were at home to Charlton or at home to Forest or at home to the multitude of championship teams who you, you wanted to beat and had to be beaten if you were going to be in the mix in the way that Leeds constantly wanted to be in and then you know were able to be under Bielsa it is a change of a change of dynamic and and I think you're right you know there there is plenty at stake this season because they cannot afford to get relegated and they absolutely cannot afford to get relegated having invested in the way that that they have although we you know like you said we we will come on to how how it's been done and and how the summer's been managed financially but you know the, the sort of sense of Jeopardy beyond that is is much smaller. If you do find yourself in mid table, and if you do find that by the turn of the year you you're pretty comfortable, I guess if you want to put your head in the clouds, you can think about European qualification or whatever else. But you know there are a lot of teams in the Premier League who, from Christmas or the end of January onwards, 
find themselves rolling quite comfortably because they, they know they're going to stay up. And it takes a bit of getting used to that. But it, it's not a bad thing for everybody, I don't think, to take out the the game-to-game stress of the league table and you know the, the promotion chase and, and all of those things that have been in the background and in the ether at, at Leeds for, for so long. It, it is a completely different season, this one. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. We've dealt with the incomings and the expenditure there on the transfers, but how has this happened? Because there's that lingering fear at Leeds that we'll be doing what Ridsdale did and bankrupting everything and goldfish and mortgages and, and loans and stuff. So we've spent a lot of money. Obviously, it doesn't all go out in one go, but when you factor in agents' fees, signing-on fees, so on and so forth, hefty outgoings this summer. So... How have they done it? Uh, yeah, I was saying in the piece I wrote on Monday when um, for when the, the deadline closed that one of the interviews I did with Victor Otter, we were chatting about transfers and you know the, the way in which recruitment can look very straightforward or easy from from the outside, and um, whether it works or not, it's, it's very easy to pick holes in. And he kind of said, you know, people think it's like football manager, and, and I play football manager too, but you know the the reality is very different. This has kind of felt like a window in which they, they almost were playing football manager. You know, players coming in for 27 million, 18 million, 17 million, you know, repeatedly either breaking or matching or going close to that, that Rio Ferdinand transfer record. And, and I, was sort of, but I was saying that, you know, the, the thing about Ridsdale was that the way he played the transfer market, it was like he was playing football manager in that as soon as you ran out of money you just and it all went wrong, you, you kind of reset the computer and, and started a new game. It's different this time around. It's different for a few reasons. Um, the, the first being that back when Ridsdale was spending the amount of money that he was, Premier League clubs had nothing like the level of income that, that they do now. They, they were rich and they were wealthy in comparison to a lot of leagues in Europe and, and the leagues below them as well. But everybody knows the way in which um, television revenue in particular has, has morphed and grown over the years. So they, they do now have a, a very hefty income at Ellen Road. The basic figure, and, and this doesn't just apply to the the four new signings. You've also got the fifty million pound that's been committed to Helder Costa and sort of five million pounds or thereabouts um, that's been spent on um, Melier coming in from from Lorient in France. You're pretty close to hundred million pounds um, when it comes to the the kind of agreed fees and the the amount um, and the baseline figure that Leeds have, have committed to. I think the important thing to say first is that. In these circumstances, you never, ever pay all of this money or anything like it up front. So if, if it's in your head that Leeds have spent £100 million in this window, they, they absolutely haven't. The way I understand it is that a lot of the, the deals, both the fees and the wages, but the fees in particular, have been back-ended, um, which is to say that Leeds will pay more by way of instalment 
towards the end of the player's contract. And they've also done what's called um, amortisation. And people, a lot of people will know what that means, but for anyone who doesn't, it's the way in which you structure a fee so that you pay it in instalments over the course of a contract. So, for example, held a cost of £50 million from Wolves, that will be paid in chunks um, over the four years of his deal that, that he's signed at Ellen Road. Um, and I think it's, from what I'm told, with the individual transfers that, that have been made and the signings that, that have come in, the, the initial payment for them in each case has been no more than around about three million pounds. So it, you know, with obviously more to come, it, it's you know not to pretend that that the fees aren't there to be paid further down the line. But there are a number of ways in which this can be managed and ways in, in which it, it can be handled. Um, and that is certainly the first one for clubs these days is to make sure that, with very very rare exceptions, the fees that you're agreeing to do not come out in one big whack. Contrast that with Ridsdale, and we did a bit of a dive into this on the Square Ball podcast. And for anybody who's not aware of what he did, he borrowed against future transfer values with players like Mark Viduka. And then the transfer market obviously collapsed. And we found ourselves with players on massive wages who we couldn't shift because if we sold them, we would actually owe money on them. We wouldn't get any of the money for the sales. It would all be owed to the finance company, plus some more on top. So it would have cost us money to get rid of these players, which is why we ended up stuck with so many expensive ones at the time. And this sounds like a a far more sensible approach. One thing I am curious to get your opinion on or see if you can shed some light on it, Phil, anyway, is this this factoring that we mentioned, I think, on this show a couple of weeks ago. Radrizani did the interview with the Financial Times in the UK where he said they may look to borrow on future TV revenues. Now, should say for the record, TV revenues last season were Norwich got about 96 million all the way up to like 176 million for Liverpool at the very top of the tree. And it's based on TV appearances and where you finish in the league. So let's assume we finish somewhere in the middle. Hopefully we're looking at about 130 million quid in merit and TV payments this year. And that's before you get commercial stuff that the club brings in itself as well. So we're in a healthy position. Yeah, um, from what I understand, Leeds have taken a forward funding deal, which is essentially borrowings and um, that are paid back future, using future broadcast income and, and TV rights money that is owed to you. And I, I believe they've they've borrowed in excess of, of thirty million pounds, something something like that, a, a bit over over that amount. The thing to say with this is that forward funding is incredibly common in the Premier League. Most teams do it. And the way it's structured is that when it comes to repaying these loans, which come from banks or other kind of established lenders, the Premier League secure it by essentially agreeing with the lenders that they will pay the TV money direct to them um, when the payments are due. So in the case of Leeds or anybody else who, who has a, a forward funding deal, rather than the TV money going from the Premier League to the club and the club then having the duty or the responsibility to pay the lender back, the Premier League will pay the money direct to make sure that the loan is serviced and, and to make sure that the loan is is no is no issue and um, and that there's no breach of the terms um, and, and that it is met on the dates when it's supposed to be. So I know that the idea of borrowing in football always concerns people, um, but it, it is a very common thing, this. There will be some clubs in the Premier League, the biggest clubs potentially, you know, like Manchester City, um, Chelsea, with, with the, the funding they have who don't necessarily need to do this. But it's very much common practice. And, and as I say, it's so much so. And it's, it's, it's accepted at that level to the extent where the Premier League do oversee it and, and make sure that the integrity of it all 
um, is looked after. Now, the one thing, obviously, that that might do is it might mean that, that in future transfer windows or further down the line, there's, there's a little less cash um, when it comes to further investment in the transfer market or whatever else. But I think what Leeds wanted to make sure that they did um, in this window was recruit in a way that created a squad that was going to be durable and, and sustainable for, for a number of seasons. Um, so that if they recruited heavily now, and, and you know, they recruited heavily in, in terms of finance rather than numbers, but they would put they would put players and, and signings in place who were going to benefit them for a while. And, and I certainly think they've done that. And I, I, I get the impression that they would like to think that going forward into January or potentially next summer, while they might need the odd player in the odd position, they wouldn't necessarily need to go the whole hog in the way that they have by by committing £100 million this time round. And alongside that, you have to remember that there's been a massive um, upturn in commercial income at Leeds. I mean, absolutely huge in, in comparison to what they had in, in the Championship. For example, the, the shirt deal that they had with 32 Red was worth about £750,000 a year. SBO top on the front of the, the shirt now is worth about £6 million. And in total, the kit deals that they've got with Clipper um, and, uh, and SBO top and and, and all of these things are worth around about £10 million a year to them. They also get a million pounds on top of broadcast revenue and extra million pounds for every game they're involved in that's televised live. And so far, they've been chosen for five. Um, every position you finish higher in the Premier League is worth £2 million to you. And, and they will get a huge amount of income from shirt sales as well, which, as I'm told, they expect to shift around about 250,000 of the new Adidas kits um, this season, which is a massive figure and, and is clearly very, very lucrative. And on top of that, there is the potential for further equity investment from Radrazani or from the 49ers um, or a third party. And Radrazani's never really made much of a secret of the fact that um, he, he would be open to, to further minority investment. So I think the thing to say is that Although to look at it in, in plain sight, it looks like £100 million has been spent. £100 million hasn't been spent. And, and I think more to the point, the club seem very, very comfortable with what they've done and, and, and very comfortable with the way in which it's been, you know, this window has been structured and, and the way in which the deals have, have been set up. And I think their feeling was that the most prudent way to act was to get players in who were going to make them stronger and, and who were going to make the team more competitive and, and more able to stay in the division. And, and I think as a first window, I very much see the logic in that. Going back to the championship days, Red Rosani was sticking in about a million quid of his own money each month to pay the bills, essentially. Is that now completely stopped, as far as you're aware? I don't know how it's going to work over the course of the season because quite clearly the first tranche of uh, of central revenue from the Premier League broadcasting income and, and everything else um, will have been spent. And there's no question about that between the outlay on transfers, but also bonuses and so on that will have been due as a result of promotion through players' contracts and, and pay rises and, and everything else. I wouldn't be surprised if you see the, the wage bill virtually double um, as, it, as it was always liable to do. It might be that he still has to, to put in money, but I think the difference they have now, and, and you know, particularly if they're able to stay in the Premier League long term, is that season upon season, the, the income levels, the, the, the turnover that they'll have are, are just on a completely different scale. So there may not be the same pressure on, on him to fund in the same way. But given that obviously they've had the, the impact of COVID and have lost a huge amount of Corporate revenue, um, other other areas of commercial revenue have been hit as well. They, they have no crowd, so there's no match day income. There are shortages and, and there are shortfalls, so it may well be that he still has to pick some of that up. But they, you know, when, when I speak to them, I, I get the feeling that financially they feel like they're in a good place. Angus told us that we should expect some sort of investment over the next 12 months, be it 
internally from Radrizani or a third party externally. And I wonder, did you catch that um, extended interview? I think it was NBC who did it, but with um, Parag Marate, who's um, on the 49ers board, who's the guy who sits on the board, uh, Ellen Road as well. And that was quite informative in that he was saying there is a keenness on the part of the 49ers to be more involved, but at the minute, they're essentially passengers on Leeds United's plane. Yeah, I think that's right. When they got involved, there was a, a lot of talk about the way in which the, the two club and the franchise could, could collaborate when it came to ticketing methods and perhaps um, medical methods and, and everything else. But the 49ers have very little in the way of involvement in the day-to-day running of the club. Leeds have a, a senior management team. They have Radrizani as chairman and then they have Angus Kinnear as um, CEO and, and Victor Otto as director of football. You know, most of the decisions day-to-day are, are taken on the ground, but they do have this 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 um, shareholding, this interest of over ten percent in the club, and I think I think they would like to increase the the shareholding. I think actually Radrizani would would potentially like to see them increase the shareholding as well and, and commit some more money to the club. But again, it feels like a stable partnership there. It, it feels like a steady form of ownership, which is kind of free of, of too much in the way of politics and and free of of any real infight. And I mean, for the for the money that the Forty ers put in. Um, a couple of years ago for the, the small stake that, that they bought. They, they must be absolutely delighted with where the, the club are because they've, they've essentially invested in, in what everybody felt was the, the one club in England that, that could become so much bigger than they already were. And, and a couple of years down the line, here they are in the Premier League. When it comes to finances, then one of the elephants in the room has been Jean-Kevin Augustin. And it's going to be interesting to see where this one goes. And one of the the stories, one of the subtexts of the transfer window closing was that he's now got himself a new club and it's not us, um, it's not Red Bull Leipzig, it's it's a third party, it's Nantes in France and he's apparently gone there as a free agent and this doesn't mean though a de-escalation of the legal battle between Leeds and Leipzig. No, not at all, quite the opposite. It, it, was, it took a little while to unravel what had gone on on Monday when it was announced that he was going to Nantes but more to the point he was going as a free agent and you were in this bizarre situation where at the you know the tail end of the window he, he was essentially nobody's player Leipzig didn't want him and said you know as far as they were concerned uh, from the point where Leeds United were promoted Augustine was a Leeds player Leeds were saying he was nothing to do with them and as far as they were concerned he wasn't signing for them they wouldn't be taking him on they wouldn't be paying any money for him and then you know despite the fact that there was this obligation on Leeds' part to take him and that his contract at Leipzig ran to 2022. You had Nantes signing him for nothing and, and effectively announcing a free transfer, which really did require a, a bit more explanation. I'm still waiting for FIFA to come back to me on this to clarify exactly what's happened and exactly where we're at. But from what we're told, they've essentially sanctioned this move and you know the paperwork has been processed by Nantes, it's been approved by FIFA, um, I gather, because effectively he was going to be left without a club. You know, he, he, he's been training in France, training in Paris and gyms and, and parks alone through the summer. You know, since leaving Leeds at the end of his loan, he, he hasn't trained with them, he hasn't trained with Leipzig. He, he has essentially been estranged. Um, and, and in this situation where he was kind of unable to play because nobody nobody wanted him. So FIFA have approved this and, and, he, and he's gone to Nantes and, and he'll be... He'll be there for two years. He's got a two-year contract with them. But in the background, you have this battle. And, you know, I, th- I think we'll, we'll need to go into the details for people about, about what this involves, what it centres around and, and how it's likely to be resolved. But you've got this battle where Leipzig want £18 million for him and think they're owed it. 
Leeds don't want to pay £18 million for him and don't think they have to. Um, and the only way that this is going to be sorted, given that neither side seems willing to compromise or to, to back down, is through some form of, of arbitration or, or legal ruling, which at this stage looks likely to come from FIFA at Leipzig's request. But if FIFA are ruling on this, and we know that FIFA's not necessarily the most joined-up organisation in its thinking, but if they've sanctioned him moving as a free agent, doesn't that have an impact on the case? Because he doesn't look like he's our player, does it? No, I don't think it does have an impact on the case. I, th- I think they've tried to do the right thing by Augustine in as much as they're saying, if this was to drag on this dispute for another year, in the meantime, he, he is left with nothing. You know, he, he ha- I, I can't tell you who's been paying him, if anybody, for the past couple of months. I genuinely don't know that. I've tried to speak to his agent, but his agent hasn't, hasn't responded to, to any requests for comment. Uh, and, and you're potentially looking at somebody losing a, a period of the career due to the fact that two clubs who, you know, and, and through no fault of his own um, in a contractual sense, I mean, there were obviously issues with his fitness at Leeds and there were questions over his attitude and everything else. And, and when it came to it, Bielsa didn't want to keep him. But from a contractual point of view, this is not Augustine's fault. You know, this was negotiated in, in the last January window that he would come to Leeds permanently if, if they were promoted. This is all going to come down to the the details of the contract and specifically the clause in it stating that that if Leeds went up, they would sign Augustine on on a permanent basis. The clause was dated, um, and and essentially Leeds had to Leeds had to take him if they were promoted before his loan expired, and, and his loan expired at the end of June um, June the thirtieth because of the COVID shutdown. In the end, they were promoted in mid July, um, so almost three weeks later. Um, and what Leeds are arguing is that, in essence, the clause doesn't apply anymore. It expired at the point where they were promoted to the Premier League and, and therefore, you know, from a legal point of view, they're under no obligation to, to pay the money for him. Um, what Leipzig are countering that argument with is, is the claim that, in good faith, that clause should be taken to mean the end of the season because, essentially, that was what was meant by the clause and, and that was what was intended. It was just that at the point where Augustine's loan was agreed, nobody envisaged that COVID was coming and nobody envisaged that the season would finish any any later than the end of May, um, as it normally does. The problem for FIFA is that at no stage in the summer did they issue a directive or an order that clubs were required to honour any contract or contract clause of that nature. And I think the reason they didn't was because essentially it was unenforceable. You know, legally, they could not force a club who's, who had an obligation that ran out on July the 30th to either extend it or to um, activate it at a later date. I'm, I'm told that Leipzig did, did ask Leeds if they would alter the contract to reflect the later finish, and, and Leeds said no because they, they didn't want to do that. But essentially, Leeds feel that, that when it comes to the, you know, the, the discussion and, and the decision about how this should play out, that they'll have the stronger case and they'll be in the right because the contract does state quite clearly that they should have gone up. They, they would have signed him had they gone up by June the thirtieth. That didn't happen, and, and whether or not you think that is a an attitude that's in good faith or not, um, from a legal perspective, it does seem like a, a pretty strong standpoint. Is it is the potential there that FIFA could side with Leipzig, and even though we may not be forced to pay the fee, there could be other sanctions in terms of transfer bans or anything like that. There could be sanctions. I, I don't know realistically whether a transfer ban is likely. I think what what would be most likely to come out of this in Leipzig's favour if they were to to win win the argument or win the case is a, a compensation payment to them. I think that's what all sides are. I think that's what Leipzig would expect. I think that's what Leeds would expect as well. Um, if 
if they were to lose the case. But there is an, another recent example which I, I suspect they'll use um, to try and strengthen their own argument, which is Jack Harrison from from Manchester City. Leeds had an option on Harrison to sign him in, in the summer just gone, which also expired in the way that um, Augustine's did. It was due to be done before the end of June and would have cost Leeds around about £8 million. Um, they have since renegotiated it with City, um, as they had to, but because of the delay and because it will now be um, activated next summer rather than this, they're liable to pay £2 or £3 million pounds more for, for him, which is not a significant amount. But at the same time, you know, it, it is money that would otherwise have been theirs. So... I think they they feel like they've kind of fallen foul to a smaller extent from the COVID delay and and the fact that contracts which look watertight or in normal circumstances would have been in dispute, you know, impossible to dispute, actually have been thrown up in the air by the fact that the season did finish so much later. Uh, but at the moment, in the absence of any comment from FIFA or any any real direction from them, um, and and at this stage, it's still to reach the point where the governing body are, are ready to, to make a proper decision on this. So how it's going to play out, I, I honestly don't know, but it's become very complex and, and actually, you know, from, from a legal point of view, very interesting as well. It is interesting in the sense that um, any players who were out of contract, such as Berardi, um, had to agree to stay on beyond June the 30th due to the lockdown, which suggests maybe there's a case there to say that everybody understood that contracts expired at the end of June. And it is also... I use the word interesting because I don't want to kind of overcommit on it, but it's interesting that Leipzig tried to renegotiate it, which possibly suggests that they were aware that the existing contract didn't commit leads to buying Augustine in the first place. So it will be genuinely interesting to see how this plays out. Phil, do you reckon there's a... And I'm being a bit cheeky now. Do you think there's almost a sense of leads kicking the can further down the road with this one? I'm not sure, really. Um, I think I think they genuinely don't want to pay the money. You know, I think they, they genuinely feel that it's a transfer they would rather rather get out of. I, I think what can't be denied is that the you know the intention was there to sign him, and and I can understand Leipzig's frustration with this because they must feel that they've you know they 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 must feel hard done to on the basis that this kind of unforeseen delay is costing them what is a, a very big fee for a player they didn't want and a player who's now gone for nothing, um, and and who if they lose this case they'll. They're gonna get nothing, nothing for. I mean, I, I sort of said in, in piece I've written about it this week. Somebody's gonna pay for Augustine's signature, but it most certainly isn't gonna be none. You know, it's either gonna be Leipzig by virtue of the fact that they are, are told that they're getting nothing for him, or it's gonna be Leeds by virtue of the fact that, that FIFA tell them to, or, or somebody else like the Court of Arbitration for Sport tells them to to pay money for him. Um, so I, they know it's very much in in the background, but. Now it is in the hands of FIFA are very much heading that way. They they'll be you know, this will be dictated by the, the speed at which FIFA's FIFA's kind of legal department move. So no, I mean they, they the club kind of said quite openly at the, the beginning of the window that Augustine wasn't going to make any difference to the budget. You know, they wouldn't be constrained in what they could spend by the fact that there was this, you know, this elephant looking in the room and, and this potential liability a little bit further down the line. But I think rather than than trying to just delay and delay. I, I do get the sense that they, they feel they've got a strong case and that they'll fight to avoid this. Good stuff. Thanks for that. If you want to read about that particular elephant, Jean-Kevin Augustin, and the transfer funds and all that background stuff, subscribe to The Athletic right now for a pound a month for a limited time. All Phil's stuff is on there. Theathletic.com forward slash lead pod. Just a quid a month at the moment. Thanks for that, gents. We'll speak to you next week. The Phil Hay Show. 